Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Glad you're here. I'm always glad you're here, and I always say that because it's the truth, right? So this episode, we're going to be talking with a gentleman named Aaron Chapman, who is a loan ninja. And uh, I know you were thinking I was going to say a loan shark, but he's not. <laughs> I don't know where <laughs> that came from. But he he is a guy that I've been heard. He's in one of my masterminds, and I, I have some friends that have used his services, and he is an expert at getting loans for investors, whether it's a um, home for your own long-term rental portfolio, or maybe you're a wholesaler that wants to sell deals to long-term buy and hold investors, and you need somebody that can you can recommend or offer as part of the deal to somebody else for financing. Okay, so we're going to talk about that. I first want to tell you guys if you like the show. Please leave us a review in iTunes. Go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, wherever you listen to this podcast, and leave a review. Let us know what you think. I appreciate the reviews very much. Also, I wanted to say that on um, realestateinvestingmastery.com, the website, I have a free mind map that you can download and watch the videos I did of me walking through the mind map. And I have all those videos that are transcribed. And it's a wholesaling 101 mind map where it teaches you how to wholesale deals from beginning to end without all the fluff. So we take out the extraneous things and we just say, this is what you need to do. Like, here's one list that you can use. Here's one postcard that you can use. Here's one letter that you can use. Here's one offer that you can make. Here is one contract, a one page contract that you can use. And this is one way to find buyers. So it's like the simplest, fastest way to get a deal done from beginning to end. So it's great for beginners. Even if you're experienced, it's good to go back and learn some of the basics. And you can get that by going to flipmindmap.com, flipmindmap.com, or just text the word flip to 313131, and we'll send you back a link to get it. Again, text the word flip to 313131 if you want that, and it's really valuable. So let's get on to our guest, Aaron Chapman. Where are you from, Aaron? You're Phoenix, aren't you? I personally sit in the Phoenix market. Okay. Uh, not necessarily where I do most of my business, but that's exactly where my body is at most times. Yes. I'm looking at your picture here, and you do not look like a typical mortgage broker. I have been dubbed, I don't remember where, as the unconventional conventional finance guy. <laughs> I don't. I, I did not mean that in a negative way. I don't. I don't take it as a negative way because if I blended into that crowd, I don't know that I want to be there. <laughs> and it really was something that I kind of stumbled into years ago when I got into the industry. I crawled out of the mines in New Mexico in 1997 hmm. because they were shutting down that project, and I was looking for something to do, and I could not get a job in the world that I was qualified for. You know, yep. running heavy equipment, driving truck. Working in mines, I worked for a welding company, I grew up on a cattle ranch, all those things. Could not find a job to save my life and I stumbled into a friend of mine who passed me a business card for a mortgage broker. And so I cleaned up, cut my 
my hair shaved, all those things. And then when I got in the industry over a period of time, I had everybody trying to teach me how to do it. I was 23 years old. Here's how you dress. Here's how you act. Here's what you look like. Here's how you talk. And I was being told how to model them. And slowly I watched them all leave the industry huh. until I got to a point I was there by myself one time. And I'm like, man, the hell with this. They're all gone. So I got my leather jacket back out, grew my hair down to my shoulders, grew a goatee, and my income tripled. <laughs> and interestingly enough, I stumbled into one of the guys who was supposed to be one of my mentors. And I saw him at um, at a uh, Starbucks. And he was standing in front of me. And he looked back at me and then looked forward again as if he didn't know who I was. So I oh. kind of slugged him. I was like, hey, man. And he looked back and he goes, Aaron? It's like, yeah, hey, Bob, what are you doing? He goes, he goes, I'm still doing the advertising thing. What are you doing nowadays? And I said, well, I'm, I'm still doing finance. He goes, well, uh, what's with this? And he kind of gestures to my <laughs> whole person. And and he's like, he's like, I thought I taught you better than this. I said, no, you taught me how to lie to people with my appearance. So you taught me to be you, not be me. And the second I started being me, my income tripled. He goes, that doesn't make any sense. Well, well I, the way I, I, I kind of figured is – you know, when I dress the way I dress, I only have a, a closet full of blue jeans, black shirts, and then of course I'll wear a, a camo hat most of the time, and I've got my boots on, and I'll go speak publicly dressed like that. The whole works, and I tell people it's out of respect for them. I'm not going to lie to them uh -huh. with a fictitious view of who's standing in front of them. <laughs> I love it. And they can decide who they're dealing with at that point. And and if they and I've also noticed that when somebody expects. Uh, from an introduction, a guy in a suit and a, and a white shirt and a red tie to show up on stage, and then I walk up there, it completely tears down their what they anticipated, and then they pay more attention because they want to know what the hell is this bald bearded freak doing up here, and I got to figure this out, and they pay very close <laughs> attention. I, I I tend to get more across at that point. Yes, and in fact, those of you that are wondering what on earth we're talking about. Aaron um, looks like a biker, I guess would be the best way to say it. You got, you're bald. You got a really awesome beard that's that's down to your chest. And uh, I can't tell. The picture is small. Is it a goatee or is it a full beard? It's a full beard. Awesome. And uh, you just look like you're chill. That's, that's what you look like, if you don't mind me saying that. No, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it, it, that's not what most people, people they, they don't think the chill thing. That's a that's actually a picture that's going to go on the back cover of my a, a book I'm working on. I have kind of like that that modern but old school philosopher kind of look where you're just kind of thinking off into the distance. But, <laughs> you know, the fact that you bring up bike, everybody brings that up. I haven't ridden since 2008. I was, I was on a bike heading out of town and a guy flipped on his blinker and came into me at 82 miles an hour and sent me flipping down the road. And Ooh. at the time, I could not grow a beard. My right side wouldn't fill in. There was a patch there uh, right outside my goatee that was, was a pretty good-sized patch of no hair. And when I, I woke up in the hospital and was cognizant, it had filled in. So that's grinding my face on the pavement – Yikes. had uh, migrated the beard, if you will, and filled that patch in. And I was ecstatic. So but I decided at that point I was not going to trim until I learned how to walk again because I was put in a wheelchair. And, and however many months later, it's about probably an inch, inch and a half long. And that's when I took my first step. And I decided at that point, I'm just going to leave it. You know, another advantage to a beard, Aaron, this is a secret just between you and me. Uh, it makes you look thinner. It it hides <laughs> it hides your double chin. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, I'm trying to avoid that too, but that's that's really difficult when you do the type of work that we do when oh. you're sitting in a computer. And I'm not saying that because I need that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why would you say that, right? <laughs> just pointing it out, just in case I have one. You're you're giving me another a, a good reason to keep it. I need it for myself. But anyway, 
you're, you've been married. I'm looking at your bio here. By the way, you're with Security National Mortgage Company. Correct. And, and in a minute here, we'll give everybody your website and how to get a hold of you and stuff. Uh, you've been married for 22 years. Congratulations. And you got four kids. I'm Thank gonna, you. Yeah. I'm giving you a round of applause. That is awesome. Good for you. I appreciate that. It's it's all from pure, I would say, will and tenacity that 22 years is is an achievable thing. Because yes. a lot of times it's 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 communication, but there's probably 15 plus years of really crappy communication, and then you're, you're <laughs> that brute force of trying to keep it together between the two of you, mostly on her side than mine, because you know, if she hadn't had reasons to, to go somewhere else. I'm sure I do. Mm-hmm. She, I just haven't told her yet. But when you really get down to it, it marriage is not a, an easy thing. And we work really, really hard at trying to keep that, keep that, that focus of a, of a singular mindset. And then of course the four children, the two olders have moved out. Wow. That was a real weird attack on the senses to have a 20 year old and an 18 year old. And my 18 year old works for me, Isabel. She, um, she maintains my calendar. Otherwise I'd be in complete mess. Wow. So you, your kids starting to work for you now. Yeah, can you believe that? I mean, that that's that that's really kind of shaking me up a bit to think I've got one there, my son doing his thing. I still have the other two left in in uh, at the house. One's a junior in high school, and then the youngest, she's eleven. She's still like a chimp on coke. It's awesome. She's fun. <laughs> um, I take her hunting all the time. They all hunt with me, but that one just loves it. Wow. So I have four kids myself. They're fourteen and twelve boys, and then nine and seven year old girls. Oh wow. Nice. And the cool thing is I, I told my 13-year-old son at the time when he was 13, uh, he, he wants to get a Tesla, man. He's just like, I love the Teslas. I want to buy a Tesla. Like, how are you going to do that? He said, well, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. And I love that about him, right? And uh, he wants to start flipping deals with me, and he, he, he really likes the land concept. And so I'm teaching him how to flip vacant land. But uh, there was a – I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but I, I, it has to do with kids <laughs> – and uh, so there, I saw this meme on Facebook, whatever meme is. It's like the picture, right, with words on it. And uh, it's a guy who's a distinguished old man, executive-looking type, leaning against a sports car. And the caption says, my boss just bought a brand-new sports car. And he told me that if I work really hard and I put in a lot of overtime and I increase a lot of profit, if I bring in a lot of profit to the company – he will buy himself another car. <laughs> I love that. I showed that to my son and he's like, huh, that's interesting. And I said, do you want to be that guy? Do you want to be the guy leaning against the car? Or do you want to be the guy saying what that person just said? Right. And uh, so thinking about a bigger picture of like, you know what, uh, do you want to be a consumer or a producer? And uh, so it's cool to, that your kids are, are, uh, probably getting that training from you. Yeah. And we, I, I do talk about that with them about what they're going to do when they do that first acquisition and they get to that point of buying a home and all these things. Think about bigger picture, a really uh, distant look on today's decision where I didn't, I, I mean, I, my parents were great, but they, it was a different mindset, a different, uh, different direction. They did everything they could to help me think about the best choices, but all those choices were in the moment, not driven for what's going to, what is going to be the ramifications of that tomorrow. Now, of course, when it talks about being a good person, following the Ten Commandments, of course, they're going to push for that. But when I talked about my vocation and those things, I mean, I come from, I, my dad was a, a miner. Uh, my, you know, we come from oil field people. 
ranchers, that kind of stuff. That's our background. So for me to get into a professional type world and start working and earning a living with my brain was way different than with my back. And it's taken the full 20 years that I've been in it to really get a good groove. And we've been very blessed. I got 10 employees that work phenomenal. I'm the sole licensed loan originator within my my branch here, and we closed 676 units last year, and we're working our guts out and very blessed to be able to do that. Good for you. Awesome. You had mentioned the consumer mindset, and that's kind of one of the things that I yeah. really try and push on in the business side of it is taking a person from being a consumer, spending money going, to, going into debt to becoming now the CEO of their little startup real estate investment firm and how to build off of that and work with the right people. So, you know, it's kind of interesting you bring up that same point. Yes. And I'm, you know, we're in a mastermind together called uh, Collective Genius. And I was just looking on here. I looked up your name in the Facebook group. It's a private Facebook group. And uh, the first thing that came up was somebody was asking, hey, turnkey providers, who is the best lender for turnkeys, uh, for investors right now, especially the foreign nationals? And Dave Lundgren does a lot of deals. Mentioned your name. You were one of the guys that people were recommending here as lending, helping investors lend money. So I just want to give that, I share that in the context of Collective Genius Guys is one of the premier, if not the premier real estate investors mastermind in the United States where some of the biggest investors and wholesalers and rehabbers are in this mastermind together. It's a great group. And Aaron. Chapman and I are both in that group, and Aaron is one of the go-to guys for what he does. I appreciate you pointing that out. I um, I, I I really appreciate Dave saying that we do a, a, quite a bit of business together. I do business with quite a few people in in uh, CG, and it developed even you know a deeper relationship with him as a result of being participating in that that uh, that mastermind and those uh, quarterly events. Yeah. And and I appreciate you saying so because I don't have a Facebook. I I refuse. I'm going to die without a little <laughs> FF on my on my headstone. That's my plan. And so to hear that people are 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 still saying that even without me being present, I I really appreciate the feedback. That's awesome. Yes. Okay, so um Aaron, you you help investors borrow money on deals. Is that right? Correct. That is that's the end result. My my main goal and what my business truly is is to take a person from hey I'm thinking about investing into real estate to um, let's help you build a business. You know your and I have that investor envision themselves sitting at their board table uh, as the new CEO of the startup firm and deciding who they're going to fit on the right side as their operations division. And many times it's just getting getting familiar with some really good turnkey people and understanding that. They have a full operations division built into this system when, um, that they already will own turnkey ready to go. So it's not – turnkey real estate is not a property that's rehabbed ready to rent. Traditionally, that's how it's explained. But in reality, it's it's a property that's rehabbed ready to rent and has an operations division to boot that has had – you know, decades of experience on how to operate this safely and how to operate something like this uh, in a profitable manner for the uh, for the new CEO of this firm. And when I have that first conversation with them, I am applying for the CFO job. Now they'll say, "Oh, are you a, are you a uh, a um, you know an investment counselor?" I was like, "No, no, no, nothing to that effect. I am going to look at everything from a financial perspective and help you to stack things up." in a way to make you successful in the startup and the expansion to the extent that you feel comfortable not putting yourself at risk. There's ways that you can step into a considerably what can be considered a risky environment but not but mitigate a lot of it with the right uh, people in place. 
and we do the loan part of it just to generate the revenue because they're going to need that anyway. So we might as well do that at the same time we're taking our expertise and putting that to work. And one of the things I ask them, and I'll ask you, Joe, have you heard the term good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment? <laughs> no, but I like it. <laughs> oh, very cool. So it's very rare I run across well, – it's, it's rare that I run across somebody who's heard it. Yeah, it's amazing to me that that hasn't permeated out there further. But the reason I say that is because you know, with last year closing 676 investor transactions, the previous year just right around 400, previous year that is about 350, 360. That's a lot of experience just in a short window of time. Even though I've been doing this since 97, focusing on investors since 03, just look at the last couple of years when things were at their craziest. Yeah. We have a – serious depth of, of uh, understanding of this particular type of thing. That's a lot of judgment at work from a bunch of different people. And I get to see what the outcome is and apply that to that individual. So that makes a big difference hmm. when uh, a person can say, hey, I'm just going to go out and get a loan versus I'm going to work with somebody who's going to occupy a, a seat at my table and help me to make the right decision. Now, the decision is still theirs. They ultimately make it. They decide who sits at that table with them, but at least have they have a different consideration than, oh, what's my rate? What's my fees? Now, we all are very similar when it comes to rates and fees out there, but it's a matter of who's going to help you move the needle and get you there faster based upon how you work your mind in your business versus just, I want to get the cheapest I can find at many times a greater cost because you don't end up with really the cheapest thing. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so um, who's your ideal client, Aaron? Um, ideal client is really, man, anybody who's looking to try and get into the into the real estate investment space, and it's we're trying to develop beyond the turnkey. Not so much the turnkey buyer, but developed beyond the Fannie Mae 10, but it's really the people trying to buy their their 10 finance properties. That's our that's our bread and butter. That's where we do most of our most of our business. That, that's a real important distinction there to mention. Most lenders uh, or most banks will they have a, a limit of that's much smaller than 10 for your first investment properties, right? What's the the average limit? Number. The majority of them like to keep around four because okay. in their mind, it's risky. So there's, let's, let's talk about those limits for a second. A lot of your banks, what they have done is they like to promote within. So they'll, pro, they'll promote, let's say, a, um, a, a teller from a teller to a, to a loan officer within the branch. And then that person is trying to just wrap their head around doing, doing finance, much less trying to understand what an investor is trying to do. And then they limit to four finance properties because it's considered risky. You know, you're putting a lot of money into one person. And when you look back historically, what happened when the market crashed in real estate, they just let it all go. That's a lot of problems that had come, but it was from a different perspective. Those, those investors were not really investing. They were speculating on uh, potential uh, appreciation rather than on making a cash flow. Then, and they're also putting a lot less down. We were seeing zero down investment loans, which was absolutely insanity that was out there. So that's, that's some limitations they have there. Other limitations that they have is that they will not count the rents on the properties to help offset that expense or count them as income until that uh, investor has two years history of owning rentals. They have to appear on their tax return. Then they have to appear as a, as, as a cash positive. They can't really figure out where appreciation works – I mean, excuse me, de depreciation works in there and that it's a fictitious – um, expense that's not necessarily a, a true dollar leaving their pocket. And I'm going to call it fictitious. It's 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 a, it's an it's an item on there that's not truly an expense from their pocket. So they don't know how to calculate that properly, much less even 
count rents before they've shown a two-year history. And the reason being, they claim it's like starting a new business, then they're newly self-employed and they have to show a track record. Well, that's not the real rules. You know, The organization I'm with, we can do up to 10 finance properties for one person under the standard conforming guidelines, You know, 20% down or even 15% down, but it pencils outright uh, for a single family and 25% down for a multi-unit up to four-unit property. With your standard, you know, single digit rates for 30 year fixed, lower cost, lower rate type deal. And we can literally take the rents before they even own it off of the what the appraiser says, use 75 percent of that rent as usable income, subtract the payment, the principal interest tax and insurance and give them the leftovers income and not hit them with the debt. So if it was a thousand dollar a month rent. We would say 750 is usable because we have to factor in maintenance and vacancy. And let's say on that same that same acquisition, it's a $600 a month payment. You back the 600 out of the 750. You don't add 600 to their debt schedule because it's already paid. You just give them $150 in income, so the debt to income ratio goes down. That's a very rare calculation. It's usable, but most banks don't want to touch it because in their mind, it's putting somebody at risk. But yet, they're the same banks. They'll do the the zero down first time homeowner pay their closing costs for them and count the the tax break that they get from owning a home as income for them to help them qualify for something that they can't afford and that they got to pay for. Mm-hmm. You no, know, it's an amazing thought process to me. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about. Well, back to the the the, the ten limit here. Let's say somebody's just getting started. They want to start buying rental properties to build a long-term portfolio. Once they get to 10, are they done? Can they not finance any more properties? Or is there some way to package those loans into something else so you can start again and get another 10? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. We've done that. We've seen that happen in the past. And now and again, we start seeing uh, portfolio loans or blanket loans, whatever you want to call them, come in and out of, of, of vogue, if you will. And right now, we're I'm working on an agreement with an outfit to be able to do that. We're testing one out at the moment to be able to do that particular type of thing, to be able to block together a certain amount of them to equal at least a half a million dollars in finance and then structure it in a way that they have um, that 30-year amortization for like a 10-year period. And, you know, so we're, we're penciling it all out. I don't have the details yet to be able to, to release to the world. We can do that for another podcast, but right now I am actively working on that. Now we do have other types right now that are going, that will, that will allow us to do, you know, 35% down with a hundred thousand dollar financing with 154 purchase price at 6.99%. And it's a no income qualifier with a 30 year amortization for five years. So I have those types available for like foreign nationals and for those who are past their 10 or maybe they don't have the income bandwidth because they're self-employed and they write off everything. There's a, there's other options. So it's not just um, the, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac style conventional lending. We do have other options. Okay. What are some of the personal credit requirements that you like to see in an investor who wants to get some loans for these rentals? If they want to be at the premium spot, uh, 740 and higher credit score is going to give them their best position when it comes to rates because you know interest rates and terms are going to be based upon several factors and one of those factors of course being credit and credit only plays a small piece in it but once your score starts going below 740 you start seeing that piece that play being a, a bigger factor it starts adding what they call risk and so they'll price it 
based upon the risk and the risk goes up as your score goes down. If you get below 680, it becomes more increasingly difficult to get that financing done. They also want to see, you know, if there had a bankruptcy at least, you know, four years ago or older, foreclosures be seven years ago or older. We're looking at, if I remember correctly, it was three years, possibly four years if there was any sort of modification to loans that they had and then no delinquencies on anything in the last 12 months. What if somebody's putting down 50% on a deal? Does it matter what their credit score is? Um, that puts us in one of those other type of programs. If their credit score is waning and we need to uh, we need to get them in something, but they've got the fifty percent, that puts us into one of those other programs that gives us the um, the six point nine nine percent. If it's a lower loan size, we have to push it up there to a seven point nine or an eight point nine nine, depending upon uh, how low the loan amount is. I would think that a lender would just be saying, "Please let me lend money on that deal." Like, why is that so hard if there's that much equity, that much protection in the deal? You would think it wouldn't be hard. You'd think that, like you're saying, we'd be lining up for people to do that. But we also have uh, something that's been put in place referred to as Dodd-Frank. You have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. There's laws in place that prevent us from giving them conventional lending with those lower loan sizes – or excuse me, those lower interest rates and those better terms for – in exchange for more money down because that makes us a predator. They're saying, hey, if a person – if you're willing to give them these deals oh because they're pouring more money into it, you're praying that they're going to fall – they're going to uh, default on it and you're going to get their 50 percent in equity. So we're going to protect these people from you, Mr. Lender, who's, who is trying to take advantage of somebody putting more money into it. Uh, and that is truly what's going on out there and that's why a make sense deal is not allowed anymore. We can't, we can't uh, do common sense. We have to use something that protects the, the public from us. Don't you just love our government? Yeah, so. I, I, I am. I, it's really amazing. I had a guy call me up there and say, "Man, this is crazy." I remember, you know, ten years ago, you know, lender fees were like five hundred bucks. I'm saying, "Yeah," and I remember people bitching about that too. But um, right now, the lender fees go up because it's not just me and a couple of people working on this deal. Now there is at least fourteen people in my in my world that touches it because you have to adhere to so many different rules and regulations. It's not just us and um, and state banking anymore, you know, us in federal banking, you've got all the, the Dodd-Frank Act, you've got the CFPB's regulations, you've got Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, still state banking and federal banking. And then, of course, my uh, my um, NMLS laws where they're overseeing our licensing, all these different things that are at play. And sometimes at, at one point, they were, a lot of them would conflict. And so you had to have multiple people in place to make sure you're you're just staying out of the edge of all those those potential problems because you're you're saying something maybe not the right way or or sending something out not the right way. So you have to have a lot of people in place to protect us legally as well as uh, compliance-wise when it comes to the regulations and rules. Well, okay. I want to talk with you about, Aaron, the um, – I know you don't have a crystal ball, but like you're in the business of lending money, helping investors use leverage to grow their portfolio for retirement or, or whatnot, right? Where do you see the market going in the next few years, number one? And number two, how do investors protect themselves with getting over-leveraged? Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So number one, where do you see the market going in the next few years? And then number two, how do, how do investors protect themselves? 
Well, it's a bunch of different thought process to the market. You know, the market covers a lot of ground. I've been listening to a lot of different uh, theories and different perspective on what's happening here. And one of the things I find interesting is our, our economy has been pushed pretty heavily as far as it going up and the GDP increasing. And a lot of it's been due to what they refer to as PCE or personal consumption expenditures. You're seeing a lot of personal funds being spent on just stuff, right? So consumers have been, statistically speaking, I understand, making up uh, 72% of the U.S. economy. An alarming statement that I had heard in January was that the, the U.S. consumer makes up 196 or 19.7% of the global economy. So pretty, pretty alarming statistics thinking that we as consumers cover that much ground and hold up that much of the uh, – of not only our economy but the world's economy. So then looking at that and the fact that in quarter uh, – for 2017, GDP spiked up, consumer spending went up, and then you go and compare it to personal savings. You know, personal savings back in uh, second quarter of 2017, if I remember accurately, I could be slightly off here, it was about 5.5% of the average uh, person's income. Fast forward to two th- end of 2017, we showed the, uh, the personal savings rate was at 2.4%. We're dropping 3.1% even though – you know, so we're losing savings but we're increasing in spending and a lot of that spending had to do with debt. People were going yeah. into debt to buy whatever they were buying and now we're seeing reports of, of delinquencies on autos. So one of the things I'm thinking is the market – you know, uh, the, of course, the, uh, the stocks, all our equities are being driven by, by the, the state of the economy and how healthy it might be. Or how healthy is our economy when it's propped up mostly by consumption, that consumption is driven by debt and we're seeing savings dwindle and we're starting to see delinquencies and part of the other factor in this is inflation and the inflation numbers do not con- do not con- include energy costs and we're starting to see energy go up. So I'm – of the belief, at least from a lot of the data I'm seeing, that we may start seeing the, the the equities lose that more of that ground. The more ground they lose there, the more potential ground to be gained in the mortgage-backed securities markets as well as the other other bonds and potentially gain back some of these losses we took in interest rates when the, when the Fed unra- unraveled their balance sheet. So my personal thought here is that it could lead to rates maintain their low position or finding a little bit lower position, not a ton, but a little bit. We're still going to be traditionally in a low position as far as the rates driving uh, the ability to continue to cash flow on real estate. And people are going to be in a position where they may not consume as much anymore. They may have to get back to that savings position they were at and maintaining, keeping a, a, a roof over their heads. And I'm praying that it's going to uh, continue to help the real estate market as far as the investors are concerned because we know the way wages are versus the cost of living that where people are not positioned to keep buying houses in many markets, especially your wage-based economies in the south and in the Midwest and in the Mid-South. They're the type of economy that um, there's just a, not a lot enough income coming in there for people to put money down to buy uh, – to fix up some of these older homes. It just keeps a really good, stable market for an investor to come in, buy good housing and have a, uh, a large group of, of uh, renters to work to, yeah. uh, to, to rent to. So picking the right market is a good way for an individual to 
to keep themselves from not so much getting over and we think of over leveraged over leverage has a lot to do with with your cost and what market you're in if you're buying in new york or buying in uh northern or southern california you're in a position where you're spending a lot of money and when you see a market correction even of 10 percent, that can be very very brutal mm-hmm. but if you're talking about a midwest or a south and you see an average price point in the say 90s and you see a 10% correction, person can weather that. So over leveraging has a lot to do with where you're parking your money, not so much how much money you're parking. That's interesting. You know, I've been seeing in the news, um, CNBC actually was reporting on it, how the luxury market in New York City is taking a huge hit right now. And I think what they're saying is that – they feel like, at least in the luxury market, we've reached the limit, and now prices are starting to come down, trying to find that balance. You know, it's like a pendulum. They swing a little bit up, and then they go a little bit back to normal, then down, and then up a little bit. So it is interesting to see that. And the other thing I'm, I've been reading about is how prices for houses are going up astronomically, and when you compare that to the, the increase in income. People's mm-hmm. average increase in income. It's way out of whack. And that can never that can't go on forever. Just based on if I oh, I wish I could remember the numbers. If houses are appreciating ten percent a year and the average income is only appreciating going up two percent a year, well that, that that's not gonna work for for most people. So I think that's interesting. So being Careful with where you're investing is a huge part in that in protecting yourself is what you're saying, right? Oh, most that that to me is the biggest part of it and you know, making sure you're not just jumping into a market because you think you're getting a great deal. I kind of equate some of those coastal markets versus the south and the Midwest to trying to compare like a Vogue magazine to a Mudbog magazine, right? So if you're talking about a fashion magazine, the cover changes all the time. Right. What is sexy today is definitely out of sexiness two months down the road. Right. Yeah. So people are spending a lot of money in this awesome this awesome article, this handbag or whatever the heck it is. But now all of a sudden that's not awesome anymore. And you just spent, you know, eighteen hundred dollars on something that's not awesome. And now you're going to go buy the next awesome thing. Mm-hmm. We'll get to Mudbog Magazine. Now, I know Mudbog Magazine doesn't exist, but let's let's talk about what's mm-hmm. going to be on that, right? If that existed, we know for a fact from looking at all the trucking magazine, the off-road magazines, everything else, that if that started, let's say 20 years ago, it would start out with a lifted Chevy truck covered in mud with a shirtless redneck holding a beer standing on the hood. Fast forward 20 years, you'd have a shirtless redneck standing on the hood of a Chevy truck covered in mud holding a beer. That's just what's going to happen because there's consistency in that, right? So when you talk about those markets, those markets are very consistent because those people love the same thing. They love – Beer, mud bogs, and hot dogs. That's their life. And they, they 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 go to work, they come home, they pay their bills. That's the way it works. Right. You get yeah. into these other coastal markets, you start looking at real, uh, real estate sexy today. So we're gonna buy this luxury stuff. Well, it's not so sexy anymore, so we're not gonna own that. Yeah, you know, it's actually cool to be a vagabond right now and wander around and you know, so all these things that change with what is is considered to be the the style of thought process in those areas, they're being pushed around by by the consumer. Uh, consideration versus the people that just just have a, a habitual life. I think that could be partially one of those things to consider when you're looking at different markets is what's driving the individual within the market. And that's why I think that we'd be a little bit safer in, in places such as the South or Midwest or something to that effect. You know, what you're talking about is 
the b- being in the middle of the curve, looking Correct. at where, you know, th- there will always be the, where you got to follow the demand where, th- and then that's in the middle of the curve. If you were to take a look at all of the homes that are bought and sold and sort them by price, you look at a bell curve and that bell curve in the middle is the high part of that curve. And that's where most of the homes are being bought and sold. And if you focus and stay on those homes in those areas, you're always going to do well. People always will need a roof over their heads. It'll go up and down a little bit. It always does. But if the fundamentals are there and you are buying, holding homes that cash flow, you're not counting on appreciation, but the fundamentals are there at cash flows and you've got good financing in place that, um, you know, you can pay it off in as quickly as possible. You're, you're, you're always going to do well with that. Right. And, um, with those fundamentals in place, even if you have a vacancy, even if the rents do go down, then you're still going to be fine. I mean, the value of a house, it could go down 20%. That's a lot of money. But if your rent goes down 20%, that's not that bad. And the rents never will go down that much in my opinion. I I think. Don't hold me to that. But like it's very rare to see rents decrease um, like that. So I got another question for you, Aaron. Mm -hmm. We were talking before we started recording about an example deal in St. Louis. One of my clients was uh, got it under contract and was either thinking about holding it for themselves or wholesaling it, selling the contract to another investor who might buy it. And it's a deal he got under contract for thirty-two thousand, and uh, it rents for seven hundred dollars a month. So he's either thinking of buying it and holding it himself, or selling it, selling that contract for a five thousand dollar assignment fee. But I wanted to ask you about this deal for a couple of reasons. Like, is this a deal that you can finance, and what kind of financing could somebody get, and what would they need to qualify, or how, what would they need to look like? And it's in an area of St. Louis. That is is close to Ferguson. Everybody has heard of Ferguson, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's that's got some pretty uh, pretty broad uh, advertising on that one. Yes. Well, the problem is Ferguson is actually a great area. It's not in the worst areas of St. Louis. It's in a really good area. It's just got a bad reputation now because of unfortunate events. But this is a home that will rent for about seven hundred. It's a two bedroom, nine hundred square foot. But it doesn't need any work. It's in great shape. And it could probably rent for seven fifty, and so if you get financing on it, the numbers look really good. I mean, you can get—I um, don't have it with me right now—like a ten, uh, a ten percent cap rate. If you get financing, depending on what kind of financing you can get, you can get about a eighteen to twenty percent cash on cash return. And I'm figuring in vacancies, management, maintenance, repairs, future capital expenditures, all that good stuff. If you can get financing on this kind of a house. You can do really, really well with it. So first thing I want to ask you, Aaron, is that kind of a deal. If 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 my client were to advertise that contract to somebody else, could he offer, could he tell them, could he tell that end buyer, hey, I got this guy, Aaron, who can lend on that deal? Now, take take me backwards to the very to the very first question or at least statement in that saying what that what that property is selling for. It's worth about forty grand. Forty grand. Yeah. That's where the tough part becomes. 
we've got um, at this point anything under about 54,000 starts to get really, really tough. There's no real, real published loan limit. But what it really boils down to is when you start getting below a certain point, the cost to loan ratio starts exceeding government requirements. Okay. And then you're back into the predatory stage again where you're charging way more than what um, they deem is – they deem one should. But when you think about it from the perspective of an investor, you know, they pay 12% and five points or eight points or 10 points all the time because they know what the long game is. Mm-hmm. But but they're trying to protect the consumer from overspending because there's a lot of people that gouged others in the past. So those lower loan sizes are very, very, very tough to do. Um, I do know that there's some out there that are working on um, some portfolio type deals where you'd be able to take multiple $50,000 properties that say six or, or it'd probably be like you know, 14 or 15 of them wrap under one deal and then you can you can take them all down that way. But it's really, really tough to do those lower deals. And I, I wished I could say it was simple, but it's not because of that uh, that that cost to uh, to loan size ratio. And sometimes just having a title company involved blows that ratio out of the water. Hmm. So would this be a deal you'd pass on? I would have to, unfortunately. Okay. I don't have any I don't have any any source to be able to do that and legally be able to adhere to the rules. Okay. So fifty four grand and up is what you're saying is a good fifty four thousand purchase price and on up typically will keep us in a position where we can tread that line pretty. E- uh, it's not always easy, but we can tread the line okay. Some some markets may be a little bit tougher than others, but for the most part, that line uh, keeps us pretty close or a little bit as a ways from from violating the other uh, rules that we've got. Okay, let's look at another house here. I just looked it up on Zillow. This is a house that is currently listed for sale for 82500 and really doesn't need any work. Looks like a nice little house. This would be a great rental property. It's listed for sale for eighty two five. So let's just say I made an offer on this thing for $70,000, and it rents for eight fifty dollars a month, $850 a month. Mm-hmm. And I got it under contract for seventy thousand, and I'm going to sell that contract for five grand to another investor. So they're going to be all in for seventy five thousand dollars on a house that rents for eight fifty. That doesn't need any work in a good part of town. Uh, it is a two bedroom, though it's got a garage and a basement. Okay, so and a finished basement looks actually pretty nice. Nice big backyard. <laughs> so you're, you're actually looking at a deal right now. Yes, I am. So. I don't necessarily want to buy and hold this for my own portfolio, but I want to package this as a deal to an out-of-state investor from California, let's say. And uh, I have property management in place that's willing to manage it. So is this a deal that you would be would be easier for you to lend on? That would definitely be easier to lend on in that price point. Sometimes it gets a little tough when you're talking about these assignment deals because they get looked at a little cross-eyed by the uh, the powers that be. What I've seen work really, really, really good there is a person picking those things up for the 75 uh, in the cash world, making that work. And then we're able to come back in and get them, you know, refi that money for them quickly at – uh, 75% of what uh, the full value is of the 82500, putting him at 61875 in a loan size, which is definitely much better loan to value than 75 with down payment. Hmm. 
Okay. So there, well, there's different ways you can wholesale this, right? Like I could double close or I could go ahead and get transactional funding, close on it and then turn around and sell it. Right. So there is no assignment fee paid or whatnot. Right. But how, what would an investor that is going to buy this thing for 75,000, what would they need to put down and what would, uh, what kind of situation would they need to be in? Like what's their credit profile? Well, credit profile is going to be similar to what we talked about before. It's definitely a 680 and above. 740 is going to and above is going to give them their premium spot. You want to be at an 80% loan to value if you're if you're trying to buy it direct. If you want to get probably one of the better deals in this particular situation, we'd want to look at it with them, talk it through that specific one, and see what their capability is. Because if they have the capability to pay cash for it and we come back and refinance that thing at a what they call the delayed financing, you're literally financing 82.5% loan to value and you're not going to have mortgage insurance. You're going to have a much better position, much better rate. So it's doable under multiple different directions. We just have to sit down and consult and give them some different ideas to consider and see what's going to give them the best end, uh, end to that transaction. So they would need 20% down? Correct. If if I'm looking at a pro forma, what would be a good interest rate to plug into that? I always tell everybody right now, I plug in five five just as something to work off of. Before the turn of the year, we're looking at the four fives, four sevens. But okay. with the Fed unraveling their balance sheets, we saw them spike as high as five nine nine and work their way back down a bit. Okay. So a safer number is at the five five mark. Thirty years. Thirty years, yes, sir. Okay. So I'm looking at I'm doing a pro forma right now on this calculator that I have. I'm figuring purchase costs about three percent of the price. Would that be about right? Uh, I would go four, four and a half because of that smaller, smaller acquisition price. Okay, I'll do four point five percent rehab costs on this house. I'm just going to put twenty five hundred. I'm looking at like what are my ROI numbers going to be? This okay. thing will rent for eight fifty a month. I'm figuring ten percent for vacancies. The taxes on this thing, let's just say, are nine hundred dollars a year. Insurance is $500 a year. Property management, 10%. I'm figuring 10% for maintenance, and I'm figuring 10% for future capital expenditures. One of the big things I harp on with investors is always, always under-promise and over-deliver. So oh, yeah. if you think it can rent for 850 to 900 then when you're figuring your calculations, use 850 Don't use the 900 number. And and if you think that the, the value of the home is worth between – 75 and 80, then use 75,000. Do you understand? Under promise, yep. over deliver. So looking at all those numbers, if I go here to summary, this investor would purchase, the purchase price is 75 grand. They're financing 60,000. They have 2,500 for rehab costs. So their total cash needed is 20,875. It rents for 850. Their cash flow is only $61 a month. And their cap rate is 6.4%. And their ROI, actually, the first year is negative. So this may not be a good deal. We'd have to then either raise the rent, which I don't think you can do, or lower the price. So what if – I'm just looking at my numbers here, and I'm kind of talking to myself. <laughs> let's say <laughs> let's say the cap rate – you can offer 10% cap rate. So then let's say – Cash flow. By the way, in case some of you are wondering what I'm doing here, there's I just interviewed this guy called um, uh, I forget his name, but he has a pro. Oh, what's his name? <laughs> Anton Anton Ivanov. He's from 
Russia, but he lives in the United States, and he has a program called DealCheck.io, and it's amazing. I love it. DealCheck.io, and I'm doing the numbers right here in this thing. So you would have to put more money down to get more cash flow, and uh, you'd have to offer less. Seventy-five grand. This may not be a good deal because the the numbers I can't make this attractive. But um, I know St. Louis. I could probably get a deal for that same amount of money if I go into another part of town that would rent for about a thousand dollars. So I need to spend a little bit more time digging in and researching that. But the point I'm trying to get at here, guys, is you can use these kinds of programs like dealcheck.io, put together these pro formas, these projections, these, these numbers, and put them together in these really beautiful reports and say, yeah, by the way, I've got a guy that will finance this. And here is, well, I wouldn't maybe necessarily at the beginning give them Aaron's name and number, but you can tell them I have a lender that's already looked at this deal and has said that they would lend on it. And um, let me know if you're interested and I'll give you his name and number. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And you can also say, I have a property management company and I have a contractor. Or you could say, here, I have three property managers that would manage this property and I have three different contractors that would help you rehab it or whatever. And I already have financing in place. And that's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, do you think if you had a deal like that here in the Midwest in St. Louis or Kansas City or Indianapolis or Columbus, Ohio, and you start marketing to guys from New England, New York, California, Utah, Washington State that are looking to park some money and to invest in some really good rental, cash flowing rentals, this kind of analysis and and having a, a mortgage broker like Aaron in your back pocket that you could give to these guys would help. That would definitely help and would help. Well, it's de- people don't know where to get started. And that's kind of the toughest thing for anybody is, uh-huh. you know, just walking to a gym, you know, on, on January 1st and seeing how many people are kind of wandering around, look at all the equipment. It's like, what do I do next? <laughs> right. People are willing to pick up the phone and ask. They're willing to click on the website. But what next? Having the, ex- the experts, having people sitting at their board table with them and helping them know that you really need to focus on picking the right people and then just run with it. It's all going to work out. And as long as they're working with the right group, they don't have to stress about it near as much. I concern myself more about their business than my own because mine takes care of itself if theirs works. Uh-huh. Well, that's good. All right. So, Aaron, anything you want to add? What we've talked yeah, about? Yeah, there's – there's really kind of outside of this part of it, you know, the nuts and bolts and the and the, the business day thing. There's there's something I really like to put, to get out to the world at this point. You know, do you remember the book, the book, The Secret? Did you read that? I did not read that, but I know what you're talking about. You know what I talk about. A lot of people uh-huh. talk about the attitude of gratitude, right? And yeah. the uh, the uh, law of attraction. We've probably read quite a few other books that may have talked about that. Have you ever heard anybody tell you the practical application of gratitude? No. It, it never comes up, right? Uh, the the best that I could have ever gotten from anyone was, well, it makes you feel better, you know. So you start your day in a good good mood, and it, it helps you to interact with people with a better better perspective on things. But there's no real ever practical application. Well, I found myself in a situation where I had a a uh, millennial employee. It came to a point where when I hired her, I hired her at a certain certain income and she was you know, hoping for more. And I said, well, you know, we've got to start you out somewhere. And after a certain length of time, a specified time period, we'll reevaluate what, what you're doing, your contribution to things, and we'll reconsider what we're paying you and, and pay accordingly. 
So that time had come. And I'm looking at the average wages and what the average increase is. And I even talked to a client of mine who worked at a at a very, very large firm as an executive. Said, what would you see this being? She says, well, the average is about two to three percent for a person who's doing well. I'm like, man, that's nothing. I'm my what the number I came up was like 10% and 30% bump to her bonus with certain metrics. She goes, Well, good luck on getting that one through. Well, being the fact I don't own the firm, I had to run up the ladder. And they all came back pushing back on me. It's like, no way. But I push back on them. It's like, well, I can't give her 3%. That's crap. We'll lose her and she's doing a great job. They said, okay, you have to paint the picture for us as to what kind of job she's really doing. So I had to go through a bunch of emails, go through all sorts of information, go backwards into my business six months and and really see where her contribution was and paint this picture. Yeah. And I suck at that. That is not my strong point. I, I always sell my my girls as my wizards behind the, cur- uh, behind the curtain. I'm the smoke mirrors and BS, right? Yeah. Well, here I'm having to dig deep and, and get this data. Well, it took me about two weeks and I, pledged, I uh, pleaded my case and they agreed. And they went ahead and authorized that. So I couldn't wait to sit down with her in my office and present what she had earned and what I worked my guts out to get. So we went over the same data, sat down with her, went over the data that I went over with them to, to show her what she had done and how, how she has contributed and the trajectory she was on and what things we can work together to help improve and, and, and tighten up. And then I went to show her what we were going to do for her and I was excited. To see that, it's just like buying your kid that bike, you know, that they've been staring at all the time and see their their reaction on Christmas. Well, I told her what we were doing and she looked at me with this twisted look on her face. She's like, that's it? She goes, you couldn't do any better than that? So what is your gut telling you at that point when that kind of a reaction? She's clueless. Yeah. I mean, at that point, my anger was boiling at that point. It went from I could not wait to I honestly went the exact opposite direction to I I was wanting to say, well, not only do you not get this, but clean out your desk, you're fired. That's what I wanted to do. I was that angry. In fact, I was boiling to the point. I was like, give me your car keys, too, because you don't deserve that. But my rational mind kicked down. I went into a coaching mode and taught her, talking to her about some things and you know, kind of saying this is how things work here. But it, it caused a little bit of a rift there. That ingratitude just just boiled me up and was like, you know, am I ever giving you anything now? In fact, I would really just like to take it all back. And so there was just that little bit of a difference in our in in the uh, business relationship from that point on. Well, that same week, I'm exiting the freeway coming to the office and I see a homeless man on the, uh, on the off ramp. And you know, the scene, he's standing there with his, uh, his cardboard sign. There's something about this guy. And I reached to a point in my truck where I always have cash hidden. There's a point in my life. I was so broke that I needed to scramble for change just to get enough gas to get home. And when I saw him, I reached, I pulled that money down. I rolled down my window and held it out and he walked up, accepted the bill, nodded to me, thanked me and turned to walk away. And as he's walking away, he's unfolding it. And he looks back at me and goes, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, why? He goes, this is 20 bucks, man. I'm like, yeah, it's yours. He walks back to me, reaches up and takes my hand, brings it towards him, bows his head and audibly says a prayer of thanks to God and a blessing on me. And when he was done, he raises his head with tears streaming down his cheeks and thanks me profusely for changing his life. That hit me 
so hard. I was, I was taken, I was overcome with this feeling of guilt that I did not have more to give. Cause if I had more money on me, more cash on me, I would have given him anything because of how I felt. In fact, I was even asked him, do you have a square? Cause I'll swipe my card. <laughs> and, um, he just kept thanking me and he was crying and I told him, listen, I, you know, God bless you. I hope you I hope things work out. But then the light turns green and people are honking behind me. And I, I went on and then it hit me. That's the practical application of gratitude. In one situation, I gave somebody a $10,000 a year increase to their income, and I felt like they spat in their face, and I wanted it all back. Not just what I gave them, but everything they ever got from me and everything they'd ever, ever get from me. The next two days later, I give a guy 20 bucks, and the way he responds to me, I would have willingly giving everything I gave her and then some. So the contrast there just taught me that we have misused the concept of gratitude. We think that it's this thing of how we feel. We think it's this thing about how we uh, how we go this this um, communication between us and God. No, this is us and everybody. You know, and I was at a meeting. I, I met, mentioned earlier before we got on the podcast here. I talked about our event with CG in December, yeah. and we had a speaker there who talked about gratitude. And he says, "You oh, don't yeah. get out of bed unless you have three new things to be grateful for." Well, I started trying that out. And I found that, man, uh, there's going to come a point where I'm just going to be stuck in bed because you kind of can't come up with new things. Well, then it hit me after interacting with this homeless man that I get them all the time. You know, we we'd mentioned Dave Lundgren earlier. I get referrals from him and from his his people in his office. We've got other people within our within our group, like Missy McCall and her team, that that give me referrals. And Jimmy Vreeland, and then yeah. the opportunity to work with you and having Jason Medley connecting us. All these people are giving me something every day. They're giving me a name of a person to influence, and I can be influenced by. So now that name, as long as well as the name of the referring source, gets written down on a piece of paper, and I do as I was taught by that homeless man to present myself before deity and say, ask and, and give thanks for the opportunities been given me to work with these individuals and a blessing upon each and every one of them. And it's completely changed my life and my, my business. And I do come into my business with a completely different feeling when I'm exercising gratitude. And then I'm experiencing it coming back in, in just uh, you know, tenfold when I started incorporating that particular type of thing into my world, not just in business, but in personal, an opportunity to be here on this podcast with you and share this and hopefully just touch one person who knows what that can do. And that's what I'm out trying to do more than do business is to touch a person's life and change it for the better. That's good. Really good, Aaron. Awesome. So how can people get a hold of you? The best place, just go to the website, AaronBChapman.com. So A-A-R-O-N, B as in boy, Chapman, C-H-A-P-M-A-N.com. You know, the middle initial is not boy, but it's uh, my parents decided to get cute with the initials. And so it's kind of hard to forget when you know that that was the the, the uh, fuel behind it. <laughs> Aaron B. Well, I have a middle initial B. And you know what it stands for? What's that? Barnabas. Barnabas. <laughs> well, mine is Bert, so it's a little bit more uh, – I, I will take Bert. <laughs> Is Barnabas? Is that a family name? No, it's a biblical name. A dude I'm from familiar. a dude from Acts was called Barnabas, and uh, it means son of encouragement, I think. So they just Barnabas. My kids laugh whenever I say Barnabas, but uh, yeah, that's yeah, it's kind of. I've always been a little embarrassed by it, 
but uh, uh, we all have to be different, you know. And and I have I've heard some pretty crazy names uh, that people will use nowadays. But Barnabas is is especially going backwards into the biblical thing, and it's interesting that it's not that it wasn't used before in the family. I mean, mine Bert is my father's name. Aaron uh, comes from the Bible, so that's where my parents got that directly from the uh, from the Old Testament, and that's where they use that. And yeah, so in a, in a way, we have a connection there in the fact that our parents using the Bible to to uh, to name us. Yeah. That's good. I appreciate what you were saying about gratitude, man. That's something we all need to be reminded of. Be more grateful for what we have because we have a lot to be grateful for. Cool. Oh, most definitely. I mean, I'm looking right now, just before we got on here, I got a uh, got an appraisal on a property of mine that they appraised it for less than I paid for it. And I know it's worth a lot more, but it's under construction. There's two structures there. And so they're really beating me up badly on it. Not only am I paying $2,250 for this damned appraisal because I have to go with the commercial world, huh. but also um, he's coming in with this lower point because of the loan to value ratio I got to do. I got to walk in another 50 grand and I already put up 20. So I'm sitting there just – and rather than get fuel just boiling, I'm like, you know, I'm grateful I have the wherewithal to do this kind of thing. You know, these kind of first world problems, where did I think I'd ever have that? So that's the other thing. We we run into issues. Real estate guys know this. You're going to run into problems. Appraisals are going to come in low. It's because you're dealing with somebody else's opinion, even though this guy's got to be blind as hell. Yep. You're paying a lot of money for these. Sometimes just a regular – I mean it's a hundred – you know, nearly a two hundred thousand dollar property. I'm paying twenty two fifty for an appraisal. So when people complain to me about the seven hundred dollars ones, we'll sit down and talk. But think about this: we're in a position to do this, and we need to be grateful about the fact that we have this. I mean, how many people out there are just struggling to bread their table? We're complaining about having to pay a couple extra bucks or deal with somebody's uh, low opinion of what we see as a really great opportunity. So, I mean, you know, that's that's one of the things I always try and close with is really recognize where you're at in life and where you're heading and that you're capable of a lot of things. You need to be grateful about what what you what problem you are facing and that you have the wherewithal to solve it. Good. Excellent stuff. Aaron, thank you so much. Again, guys, aaronbchapman.com, A A R O N B as in Bert. Or Barnabas, B as in Barnabas. <laughs> Barnabas of work. Chapman, C-H-A-P-M-A-N.com. And you'll see a cool picture of Aaron uh, propelling down a helicopter. Yes, yes. We never even touched that. I do uh, I do rescue for the sheriff's office. I'm in charge of their technical rescue unit. So we do get flown in and get to repel in and, and do things like that. I get to do that with my wife. That's how we keep it strong. But on that website, you'll see my NMLS ID, all the, the stuff you need to see about my licenses to know that I am a legit uh, person. This is not an impersonator up here doing this just for the sake of entertainment. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank, Thank you, you, Aaron. Joe. Appreciate it. Have a good one, guys. Go to realestateinvestingmastery.com to get the show notes, realestateinvestingmastery.com to listen to this replay, get the show notes, check out our other episodes, and we will see you guys later. Take care.